Hello, this is Dr. Betty Rabinowitz, NextGen Healthcare's Chief Medical Officer and Principal with NextGen Advisors. I'd like to welcome you to our podcast, and as usual, today I'm joined by colleagues Graham Brown and Dr. Marty Lustig. Welcome, Graham, and welcome, Marty. Thanks, Betty. Nice to be with you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So just this week, the United States passed a grim milestone with deaths of Americans from COVID surpassing American deaths from the Spanish flu, the deadly influenza pandemic uh, that spanned about two years from uh, 1918. It, it really brought back kind of our reflections and thoughts about that historical pandemic. And I wonder, in your minds, uh, Graham, maybe you go first, uh, what are some of the similarities and notable differences between these two pandemics? On the similarity side, Betty, you know, you just noted the absolute number of deaths uh, from the 1918 pandemic is about the same uh, as those who have passed away due to COVID. But what's changed, of course, is the size of the population of the United States in that time where we have triple the number of people living in the United States than were 100 years ago. And so the absolute number of people that have become ill and died from this is, is dramatic and a large number. But as a percentage of the population, it's actually considerably smaller. And part of probably what's helped influence and mitigated the volume of deaths are a number of different advancements that come to mind for me in terms of medical technology and how we responded to this pandemic. So the ability to rapidly create tests that identify the presence of the virus, uh, to roll those out while it was problematic a year ago, it still happened pretty fast. And there's you know, been the development of rapid antigen tests as well as the evolution of uh, PCR tests and rapid antigen tests. We've also put in place contact tracing systems. Uh, those haven't been broadly implemented, but nonetheless, where they have put in place, it's really easy to identify clusters and to warn and advise people who may have come into contact with someone who's infected and help prevent further infection. Then there's a whole variety of treatments with regard to managing and lessening the impact of the illness, our hospital infrastructure, our ICUs, our ability to intubate patients, to maintain them on artificial life support, uh, to provide them with monoclonal antibody treatment. All of those things weren't available 100 years ago. So our ability to save people from a very dramatic illness has certainly evolved. And then, of course, the vaccines. The, the rapid development of vaccines that came to market uh, within a matter of months and were available for testing and evaluation as to their efficacy certainly brought a huge amount of relief to those that were suffering and preventing further spread. I guess the final thing to note here is our technology in terms of our communication with each other has also just taken on a totally different world that would not have been anticipated or even foreseen 100 years ago. So that's allowed us to share information and knowledge at a global level. Um, but it's also perpetuated a system of misinformation and uh, sharing of misinformation at a global level that certainly prevented us from uh, responding and acting always in our best interests. Yeah, I think an interesting example of misinformation then and now, I mean, you speak to how social media has made it difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff, but, you know, the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu because Spain was the only country that was transparent about what was going on there. So everybody 
started decided because that's what they were hearing that that's where it came from even though it didn't and so there was a lot of misinformation in the in the spanish flu pandemic just like there's a lot of information today even though the there was no global infrastructure back then and it's it's interest, interesting from a historical perspective as well international travel is much more frequent and immediate and instant these days so the spread of the pandemic was fast rapid could be tracked quickly and and was all over the world in in no time the combination of the movement of troops from the United States to Europe likely acted in that regard similar to the kind of uh, travel that's now everywhere had it started and there probably were flu outbreaks of of more uh, aggressive virus more virulent strains in the absence of large movements of humans, it prob- those probably never developed a pandemic. So it was kind of the combination of something that now is just prevalent, which is people get on planes and within no time, it's all over the world. I, you know, I remember us reviewing at the time the graph of the flights out of Wuhan, uh, China to all over the world and the timetable around that. And it was those were each of those places where a plane went had a index case very quickly along those lines betty also you the the flu pandemic came in waves also but they were slower there was more space between the waves probably related somewhat to what you're describing in terms of the travel back then compared to now although there's yeah. also flu is more seasonal than covid appears to be but we're seeing the same kind of waves. And I think it's important to remind ourselves here that the, the flu pandemic lasted several years and we don't know how long this one's gonna last. That's correct. The encouraging thing about the flu pandemic is that it eventually uh, receded on its own. Either the virus <clears throat> mutated to a, a more friendly spot or there was herd immunity in enough spots where it uh, was kind of uh, stopped in a, its tracks. Reflect uh, for a moment, you know, uh, Graham, you mentioned the vaccine as such a differentiator from the previous uh, historical pandemic. The, the number of 5 billion doses of vaccine that's been given across the world, reflect on, on that achievement or, or milestone. I think it's a massive achievement for the human race and for the development of science and technology to know that um, that that milestone has been achieved within a year, right? I mean, it was just over a year ago that these were first coming out of clinical trials and that we saw that there was efficacy being demonstrated and they were moving more broadly into uh, testing on different populations to scale up and grow. So the 5 billion doses administered is an enormous number. It doesn't obviously reflect the need in uh, disseminating vaccines around the parts of the world that haven't as yet had access to them through lack of availability, lack of purchasing power, uh, lack of authority to kind of get in queue and, and get access to these vaccines. And the disparity that exists from my perspective in terms of where vaccines are manufactured and by whom and how rapidly they can get to the target populations um, because of how things have been aligned in the purchasing of those. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, Marty, in, in, in view of kind of 5 billion doses provided, talk a little bit about your sense of this, the risk and, and safety uh, record of, of these uh, vaccines. Yeah, it's actually, you know, I've been reviewing some of the numbers recently. As you know, I love numbers. And uh, uh, it's actually quite remarkable. Um, though minor side effects from the vaccine are fairly common in terms of injection site pain or headaches or fever for 24 hours. But the serious side effects, the most recent data I looked at is about one per 100,000 doses. Um, and if in serious side effects means, you know, in most of the majority of those are uh, severe allergic reactions, which of course are treatable and not life-threatening as long as they're, you know, there's the right services and technology available. Deaths from the vaccine are really, from what we know today, a, a small handful out of those five billion doses, really the only ones where there's good evidence of a true causal relationship is in the young women, uh, a few young women who have died from blood clots. And we've actually learned from that that there's a, a specific antibody abnormality that those women have that you can actually test for before you give the vaccine. So now that we understand it better, there are, those are preventable side effects. So it's extraordinarily safe. Mm -hmm. And those specifically were with the non-messenger RNA vaccine or were those in the messenger RNA as well? I think there were some cases in both, but the non-messenger RNA is where there's considered a higher risk. So considering that this is a, a, a enormously uh, safe and effective vaccine, why do you think we have been seeing so much vaccine hesitancy across across the world you know this is almost a it's not unique to us it's not it's it's a phenomenon that we are seeing everywhere the vaccine is being offered right so i didn't mention you know the comparison of you know one in a hundred thousand serious side effects versus almost 900 hospitalizations per hundred thousand among people who get covid and in 200 deaths so there's orders of magnitude difference in the risk of the vaccine versus the illness. And yet, as you say, we still are seeing hesitancy. And I, I, you know, I'm sure both of you have opinions on this as well, but I think the politicization of the pandemic has been a problem. And part of what's gone along with that is a communication challenge. Graham mentioned earlier about, you know, the internet and social media and the difficulty of getting truth through all of the noise that's that's in there. And when you're, I think the politicization of this has actually just exacerbated that problem so that it's hard for people to know what to believe. And if you take underneath that a sort of underlying distrust of authority and of science and past experience of some populations, you know, you look at the African-American population in the United States that you know, have already an underlying historical legitimate fear of of these uh, kinds of new technologies that the government is sponsoring, so to speak. So uh, I think there's a, all those issues play into 
how rational people can be hesitant about this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the only thing I would add to what Marty just said is I think there's been a real struggle from U.S. and global health agencies to maintain consistency of messaging. Um, so much has evolved in our knowledge of COVID since it first came about a year and a half ago till now that you know we, we've learned more about the disease, how it spreads. We're understanding different variants, but only learning in time whether those variants are more virulent or just more transmissible. And so the, the anxiety and the, our rapid ability to share information globally, there's a new report out, everyone learns about it, hears about it, but they interpret it in different ways. They interpret it from their own biases and their own perspectives. And that flood of new information that's not kind of curated and messaged and carefully controlled is leading to a place where people can draw from that what they want to reinforce the conclusions and the biases they already have around vaccines. And so I think that our ability to rapidly communicate and disseminate information in some ways becoming a barrier to our ability to clearly communicate and manage messaging in a way that would be more beneficial. I also think there's a confusion that people get in understanding the individual risk benefit for them alongside of the risk benefit from a public health point of view, and that, that there's value in both of those realms. Um, the value equations may be slightly different on someone's individual circumstances, but people, I think, have a really hard time wrapping their mind around both of those things at once and trying to figure out where they belong in that. Absolutely. I think, additionally, something about the speed at which the vaccine was developed and became available, I think people didn't know that <clears throat> messenger RNA technology was being worked on for 10, 15 years or more before, and that it was a historical coincidence that as messenger RNA came of age came the this enormous need for it so it's almost uh, it felt to people experimental it felt as if it didn't get tested enough and I think there was not enough emphasis on the value of five billion from a biological perspective five billion shots in populations of a variety of uh, kinds highly heterogeneous, all ages, all you know, both genders, etc., um, provides mitigates for the shortness of the experience with it because of the volume of of experience with it. And I think that that concept wasn't emphasized. Clearly, people have said, if this was around longer, I have always taken vaccines. If this was around longer, I would have gotten this. And we didn't have time for longer. This is, was a place where people needed to clearly make a little bit of a leap of faith and, and weigh the, the numbers you provided, Marty, are staggering, the difference between the risk of COVID and the risk of the vaccine. But people don't really think of it in those, in those terms. An interesting example to me of the communication challenges, all the stuff we're seeing in the news now with healthcare workers protesting, the mandatory vaccination and people looking at that and saying, well, if healthcare workers don't want to get vaccinated, they must know something I don't know. And yet, you know, the, it, even as early as the beginning of June, an AMA survey of physicians 
showed that 96% of physicians in the United States had been fully vaccinated by June. So there are, you know, there are a lot of healthcare workers who aren't necessarily health literate. Um, and so just because they're health care workers doesn't mean that they understand the science. And yet, if you look at the physicians who I would expect to understand it, you know, they're overwhelmingly getting vaccinated. And that, yes. yet nobody talks about that. They talk about the protests they see on TV. And also the aggregate number, which because there's groups of uh, healthcare workers who haven't gotten vaccinated, kind of a missing people are misinformed with an average a number of healthcare workers, which is really not, it's not the way to, to look at it. Um, Marty, can you talk a little bit about um, the special challenges and consideration uh, for COVID vaccine in children? Sure. I would just sort of highlight two things. One is people have questioned why it's taking so long, although we did just obviously hear about the approval for five to 11 year olds. There are challenges both logistically and scientifically with moving the vaccine into the younger child populations. uh, Knowing how to dose, whether it's done by weight or by age and looking at both safety and efficacy in both of those parameters just takes a whole lot more time than you can do in an adult population. Um, There are also, in the United States, there are uh, regulatory differences. They require four to six months of of follow-up for side effects in childhood vaccines compared to only two months with adults. So there's just differences in the development that require um, more time. The other issue is that we know that children are at lower risk of severe illness from, from the disease. So there's this question about, should they still be getting it? And so as an example, if you look at the numbers in the United States, the, the um, hospitalization rate and death rates for children are much lower than for adults. Uh, so the death rate uh, is about 12 deaths per 100,000. That's still 10 times the complication rate of the vaccine but it's not as dramatic as what we see in adults where there's 200 deaths per 100,000. So it's a slightly different equation at the individual level, although still I would argue, given that we're seeing 250,000 children hospitalized per week over the last month for, with the Delta variant, that we should still be aggressively moving toward vaccinating kids, even with those less dramatic numbers. So you know, there are some differences there, but the, you know, the risk to children is not uh, de minimis. And by the way, they also are vectors for spreading it to at-risk adults. So there's a clear public health reason as well to vaccinate kids. Absolutely. I wish we had more time to explore some more of these uh, topics further, but our time is up today. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. I'd also like to thank my colleagues, Dr. Marty Lustig and Graham Brown for sharing their insights and perspective. And if you've enjoyed uh, today's topic, consider subscribing to our podcast. This is Dr. Betty Rubinowitz with NextGen Healthcare. Have a great day.